0: Hi and welcome to church today. It is so good to be here with you. My name is Jake and I'm really excited about what I get to share with you today because we're going to be talking on the subject of humility today. I don't have a clever title because I'm not that great at them, but we are going to be talking about humility because the Bible talks a lot about it. And I figure if the Bible talks a lot about it and Jesus talks a lot about it, then we need to talk a lot about it. And so I'm going to start off with a scripture. And again, this scripture, if you know your Bible well, you may not remember it, but you'll certainly know about it. And it's a scripture that we often use around about Easter time, but it comes out of Zechariah 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, and we can read it together. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your King is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and key word, yet He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so this is the message uh, really that a lot of the times we use at Easter. And it's this amazing picture of of Jesus, uh, really His last visit to Jerusalem before He goes to the cross. And and it's officially known as Palm Sunday that He rides it on this donkey. But I kind of want to do a couple of things today with you. And I want to contrast that story with another type of triumphant entrance uh, in ancient history. And so we're going to go back, uh, cast your mind back maybe a couple of thousand years ago when this was happening and try to sort of imagine what it was like to be living in those times. And so we're going to kind of do this together today. And Because what would happen was, uh, if you know your history again, Israel uh, through most of all of Jesus' life was really subjugated by the Roman Empire. So the Romans were the occupying force. So it was very common to see Roman soldiers, Roman centurions hanging around street corners and marching and and generally uh, being recognised in the streets that they were very much the the, the sort of the controlling force uh, in that part of the world. And in fact, all across the Mediterranean, they were absolutely everywhere. And so it was very common to see that. Um, But what would often happen with with, with Roman generals is that when they would conquer territory or when they would conquer any kind of foreign land, you would have uh, this triumphant entry back into Rome. And it was was a triumphant entry. And and the the Senate, uh, so before Rome was an empire, it was a republic and it was led by a Senate. And the Senate would approve whether you could have this triumphant entry uh, back into Rome. And so, so one of the famous um, uh, stories is really is, is really Julius Caesar coming back into Rome. Now he doesn't have this triumphant entry, but he marches on Rome. But what they would do when they would conquer territory, if they would go to Spain and they would conquer, the the general would come back, and there would be so much kind of pomp and ceremony attached to this triumphant entry. And so I kind of want you to imagine what this would look like. You would probably have uh, the the Roman general there. So he'd be the general of the army. He would have legions of of, of soldiers behind uh, him. And he would have maybe four horses. These were big bred kind of war horses out the front. And they would be on a chariot and there would be marching in and there would be people in the streets and there'd be people thronging the streets and saying, yeah, you know, for the glory of Rome, we conquered another territory. The Romans are amazing. We're continuing to extend our land everywhere. And this, this general would come in and he would wave to the crowds. And it was really all about the general coming in and going, look at me. Look at what I've done. Um, he, all the spoils of war would be on display. So all of the gold and the jewels and the stuff would be, would be on display as they would march through the streets. There was a, a certain circuitous route that they would take as they're marching through the streets and you would see all the stuff. In fact, even the prisoners of war, they would take and they would march them through the streets. And some scholars would often say that they would march them through the streets and then they would go past the place that they were to be executed And it was almost like like a bus stop, like stop here. Okay, all of you that are about to be executed, you can now take your leave. You're going to be murdered over here. And then the march would continue to go on. And so it was kind of crazy. So prisoners and chains walking through, um, generals would have, um, minted like high value coins that would be made in their image. And again, it was so that their, um, public persona would be, um, would continue to be, so they would almost exalt themselves and they would say, look at me and look at what I've done for Rome. Uh, it would it would symbolise their kind of their rank, their elevated status in society. It's, we can't really imagine these days doing that kind of thing. I know we do it in different ways, but it would for then for those times it was so significant. The sense of this is what I've done. Look at me. Look at how amazing I am and what I've done for Rome and what I've done for my for my nation and my and my people. In fact, they would often be identified with Roman gods. Sometimes they said they would paint their faces red to symbolise the god of Jupiter, to kind of somehow, you know, they weren't human. They were kind of these, these, these gods. And so, you know, buildings and monuments would be, would be uh, sort of erected in their names as well. And so you had this kind of pomp and ceremony attached to these Roman generals that would come through. And this was often played out through the rest of history as well. And so I kind of want you to imagine that picture And then I want you to think about how Jesus came in to Jerusalem. Jesus came in to Jerusalem. And it says, Jesus came through riding on a donkey. So again, Jesus didn't have kind of four war horses. He didn't come in saying, I'm going to take over. Again, a lot of the people were thinking, this is the one, this is the Messiah. If you, again, if you know your, your, your kind of political times and those times, Jesus was the one that people thought were going to overthrow the Romans and they were going to give back um, the Jewish people their land again. And yet this was never going to be Jesus' Jesus' message. And so he comes riding on a donkey. Now, a donkey represented a couple of things. A donkey represented royalty or, or nobility. So Jesus is kind of making the point, I'm coming in as the king. Maybe not the king that you thought, but I'm definitely coming in as the king. I'm definitely coming in and I'm ushering a new kind of kingdom. But the donkey also represented peace. He wasn't, he wasn't the, the king or the God of war, maybe like a, like a Julius Caesar or a Roman emperor, a Roman general, he was the God of peace, ushering in a whole new kind of kingdom. This is what the donkey represented uh, in, this, in this place. And then look at who Jesus has got with them. It's not, it's not a Roman legion of soldiers all marching in uniform and, and kind of, uh, you know, marching in line. That would have looked so impressive. Just thousands and thousands of Roman legion soldiers marching together at the same beat. You look behind and you thought, what kind of what army is this? How are you going to overthrow people with this kind of armor? You had a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old fishermen. You had a zealot. So he was one who was like a a military, um, one that would sort of murder people for their faith to kind of push his message across. You had a tax collector, the most hated member of all parts of society. You had this kind of ragtag bunch of people. You had women who weren't considered much in that society as well. They were sort of walking with Jesus. And so it would have looked at a pretty interesting picture. This is how Jesus chose on this Palm Sunday to come into Jerusalem. People saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were shouting his name. And I wonder whether some people thought, is he ushering, what kind of kingdom is he ushering in? Is he going to overtake the Roman Empire or is he bringing in a different type of kingdom? I love this thought that Jesus was already the king. He was already the king. If you're, if you're a noble you probably, if you're, say, say you're Prince William, I've never imagined myself being Prince William, but say you were Prince William himself, you're probably not going to introduce yourself as, hello, my name is Prince William. I'm, I'm third in line to the throne of the House of Windsor. You don't really, everyone knows that. You don't really, if you're, if you're, if you're from a noble blood, you don't really have to say to people because you just are, because you always have been. It's not something new to you. I'm sure he introduced himself and I've heard him say this. He goes, hi, my name's Will. But we all know who He is. He's royalty. He's nobility. They don't have to prove themselves to anybody. They kind of know where they come from. And this is kind of how I think Jesus wants us to see things. He wants us to recognize that we are sons and daughters of the most high God. That our inheritance is already in Him. And so He came to bring about this other type of kingdom. And so I want to give you a couple of scriptures this morning that really talk about Jesus, the the humble Jesus on a lowly uh, donkey riding into Jerusalem with a ragtag bunch of disciples that would in the end go and absolutely change the known world. It's the most remarkable story, the gospel. It's the most remarkable story. You've just got to read it. And so let me give you some Scriptures because God commands us to be humble in the Bible. He commands us to to, to operate situations in life with humility. And I want to kind of think about doing that through the lens of servanthood as well. So in Zephaniah 2, chapter 3, it says to seek humility. says, Seek the Lord, all who are humble and follow His commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord would protect you from His anger on that day of destruction. So there's protection available to each one of us when we operate with humility. Colossians 3.12 tells us to to put on humility like a garment. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Man, in this day and age, these are great things to be characterized by in First Peter chapter three verse eight, he says, to have a humble mind. Listen to this, and I love how in my Bible it's entitled to "All Christians." So this is to all of us. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Sometimes it's hard to do as, to, as to, for our attitude, the way that we approach life and situations to keep humble and to keep humility at the core of everything that we do. First Peter 5, 5 again says, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves again in humility as you relate to one another. So again, as we relate to one another in relationship, the Bible calls us, Peter calls us to dress ourselves in humility. It's not just like kind of do it, you don't kind of, I don't think, be humble by going, right, today I'm going to be humble. No, you, you live a humble life. You, being dressed is actually to kind of live a lifestyle that represents humility. And then of course, at the end of 1 Peter 5, 5, we read that famous verse where God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That's a crazy verse that we know, but yet who actually really wants to live a life in opposition to God? Like if there's anyone to oppose, it's not God. Let me tell you that now, don't oppose Him because He'll win every time. Don't come into opposition to God. He he will oppose you if you're proud, but He gives grace, grace to live your life, grace to outwork the call upon your life to those who operate with humility. Again, I wanna just keep giving you scriptures that are gonna outline this for you. Matthew 18, four. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you wanna be the greatest, then it says, be humble like this little child. The greatest, again, humility is such an upside down concept. As so many of these, of these Bible stories are, so much of the Bible is this upside down kingdom. Who wants to be, the, to, be the, to be the first will be last. The Bible tells us again, don't try, and, don't try and take the seat of highest honour. In fact, sit at the back and allow God to promote you. There's so many ways in which the Bible does things that are so uh, antithetical to the way that the world would operate. Matthew 28, 12, it says again, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why would God want to exalt us? I think He wants to exalt us so that we can continue to reproduce people who are humble. He gives gives grace to us. He puts us on these platforms in every area of society, those who operate with a sense of humility. Again, we're we're trying to rise against a tide where the world will say, again, if you do this, if you show me your qualifications, if you show me everything that you've done, if you can prove to me this, if you can prove to me that. So often we sit in perhaps job interviews And what are we trying to do? We're trying to big ourselves up. We're trying to say, I'm capable. I'm significant. I can do this stuff. I can outwork the fulfillment of of the job description. Again, everything we do, rather than actually operate with a place of humility. And so again, Luke 18, 14, I tell you, It says, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Now, the context of the Scripture was it was a sinner before God. Uh, He was beating his chest because he was so concerned about the life of sin that he was living in. And this Pharisee says, again, I'm so glad like I'm not like that sinner. I'm so glad. And again, the one that went home justified was the sinner because he recognised the fact that he could never measure up to God's perfect plan. God recognises that person and not the Pharisee. Now the apostles said, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up in honour. First Peter 5.6, so humble yourself under the mighty power of God and at the right time, key, at the right time, He will lift you up in honour. There's so many more verses I can keep talking about, but we don't have time this morning and you can go and do the research yourself. But there's so many amazing verses that talk about humility. Again, look at, look at Jesus. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. In chapter 2, 6 to 9, it says, Though he was God. Again, this talks of Jesus. Here's the thing before I do this verse, the, the challenge we have is sometimes in life I go, I don't know how to navigate everything. I don't know how to figure things out. And if I ever get confused, I find myself telling myself and telling a whole bunch of people, if I ever get confused about what I'm called to do, right, I'll go back to the Gospels and I'll read the Gospels again. And I'll, I'll remind myself, what is it that Jesus did? What did He do? And how can what He do help me to outwork the life that I'm called to live? He has to be our example. There was no other example, better example than Jesus. right? And this is, this is who Jesus was. This is who He came to be. It says again in Philippians 2, though He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So He didn't go around saying, I'm God. I'm God, everyone. I'm God. Worship me. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position, there it is again, of a slave, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he again humbled himself. Are you, are you sensing a pattern in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross? Again, this was this was the, the, the worst punishment. This was the worst form of dignity as dying as a crucified person on the cross, this was for the worst of the criminals. And Jesus died like that. Therefore, again, keywords in the Bible, God elevates him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names. This is the reason that we still talk about Jesus. This is the reason why Jesus is so relevant today as he ever was, and even more so. Because this is the kind of life, the life of humility is the life that you and I are called to live. And God places us in a position of highest honour when we humble ourselves, just like Jesus did. Let me introduce you to a guy called Charles Simeon. Now, I'd I'd never really heard about Charles Simeon before. Uh, His name might have popped up here and there, but I was researching a bit about Charles Simeon. And I want to kind of just tell you a few stories, pieces of story from his life kind of before we close today. Charles Simeon was uh, it was a graduate of, of Eton College. You might have heard of Eton College in the UK. Uh, that's where, again, the royals send their kids to Eton College. And he went to Cambridge University. And he had to attend the Lord's Supper in 1779. And he was terrified of eating the Lord's Supper or taking communion because he knew the state of his soul wasn't in a great place place. He wasn't saved at this time. And then he reads a book by uh, Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper. So I love the fact that he thinks, I'm going to have to take the Lord's Supper. I better read a book about it and figure out, you know, what, what, what happens here. And it says, God had provided an offering for me that I might lay all my sin on Jesus. It was the most amazing, blinding revelation that I could put all my guilt and my sin on Jesus. And he would take all that stuff away. It says, in a couple of days, hope start to increase. And on Easter morning, he awakes with the words, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He starts work at Trinity College in Cambridge as a minister, but the parishioners didn't want him. Instead, they wanted the other assistant. There was another assistant uh, that was wanted that wasn't him. And so it's like coming into a church, but no one really wants you to be there. They say, we want the other guy. It's a pretty insecure place for you to be in. Then they offered the slot. Uh, so for five years, there was, a, there was a PM service that he was called to preach at, but they didn't want him to preach. They always, uh, this was the service that the, the church was in charge of. And they said, we don't want you to preach. We're gonna put this other guy in for five years. Five years later, the guy leaves. This guy, Charles Simeon, probably finally thinks I get to preach today. And then the answer is no, we still don't want you to preach after five years. We're going to get an independent pastor to come and preach. And so for the next seven years, an independent pastor comes and preaches this afternoon slot. So for 12 years, the pastor of his own, his own church doesn't preach this afternoon service. He then tries to start another, another later PM service where maybe he can preach at. But the deacons in the church locked their pews. They could lock their own pews. So they basically locked them out of his own church. Then they started to lock up the pews on Sunday morning as well. Imagine that, coming to church and finding the whole place locked and all the people inside saying, we don't want you to come here. So then Simeon sets up chairs in the aisles, but then the church wardens started to throw the chairs out into the street. When he tried to visit people in their homes, they, hardly anyone would open their doors to him. This lasted for 10 years. Simeon then actually gets a legal decision in his favour to have the parishioners not lock their pews, but he doesn't even decide to use it. He just holds it and doesn't use it against the church. The students at Cambridge University, where he sometimes taught, despised him. He was slandered for four years with all kinds of rumors. They disrupted his services and at one stage decided to physically assault him. But that day he decided to take another route home. Handley Mule, who writes a story in him, captures the essence of, his, of Simeon's secret of longevity in the sentence because he was at this church for 54 years. It was one church for his whole life. And he says this, he says, him, Simeon says, before honour is humility. Oh, sorry, Handley Mule says, before honour is humility. And he had been growing downwards. Don't you love that thought? Humility is about growing downwards. Year by year, under the stern discipline of difficulty met in the right way the way of close and adoring communion with God. These two things were the heartbeat of Simeon's inner life. Listen to this. So he he had this tension his whole life of this growing downward in humility and yet growing upward in adoring communion with God. It was almost like the further down he had to go, the further up his adoration of God became. What a great picture of humility that the tougher things get, that the harder sometimes the situations get, that the, the more we grow downward. The more we adore Jesus because of what he's done for us and the more communion that we have with him. He was able to contrast these two things. And in fact, he says again, he was able to contrast the sense of my own sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair. And at the same time, I had such a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overset my little bark if I had not had ballast in the bottom of sufficient to sink a vessel of no ordinary size. So what he's saying is ballast in like a ship back in the 1800s, ballast was, um, they used to put like sand and, and kind of heavy metal down in the bottom of a ship so that when they were unloading containers onto the wharf, the ship wouldn't simply tip on its side. So it had to be sufficiently heavy down below. It had to have a sufficient weight to it. And what Simeon would say is, "I need I need that ballast in my life. I need the things to happen to me in my life, so that they actually help to keep my ship aligned." So we often talk about, you know, not carrying weight, and Jesus takes takes the weight off us, but He also allows situations to happen in our life to act as kind of ballast, to act as ballast against a storm, so we're not completely over overhauled by waves and by Breaches of the Sea. In the end, he preached at his church for 54 years. He ended up founding the London Jew Society, the Religious Tract Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, and he was one of the founders of the Church Missionary Society. By the time he passed away, it is estimated that one third of all Anglican ministers sat under his teaching. What an amazing life of humility. Perseverance under all that strain. He didn't allow his external situations to affect his heart. And I just love the fact that the, the, the tougher things got, the more he adored Jesus because of what he did for him. Let me We're going to close in a few moments, but let me just give you another scripture. Philippians chapter three is, I think, one of the most remarkable scriptures in the Bible. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to just touch on a few key words because we, in verses one to nine in the New Living Translation, Paul, Paul writes the letter to Philippians really in the last kind of couple of years before he passes away. And so Paul at this stage has had decades of ministry experience. If you remember, Paul never actually lived. uh, Jesus died on the cross before he encountered Paul. And yet Paul had such an incredible revelation of what Jesus did for him. Some things, in fact, he even said he couldn't even write about. Taken to the third heaven and places like this. And he said, I can't even write because it's so incredible what happened to me. And yet Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul who had this incredible revelation, Paul who spread the gospel to the known world, Paul who arguably we are here because of his reaching the Mediterranean and the known world at that time. This Paul, this apostle Paul writes like this, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He says this, I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. So right at the start, he's saying, hey, I've done everything for you people. Again, think about the context of humility. I've served you and everything I do. Paul is often trying to defend his position because he's getting attacked by everyone. And he's saying, hey, I'm only doing this stuff because I love you and I'm trying to serve you. He says, watch out for those evildoers, those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, those who say you need to be circumcised to be saved. Watch out for people basically who are trying to add to faith. What point is living a humble life if you have to continue to do things? He's trying to say, you don't have to do anything to add to the gospel. In fact, read Galatians about that. People were trying to add to stuff to the gospel. He said, you don't have to do more. You just have to accept what Jesus did for you. That's often your most humble response is to say, man, what Christ did for me. That's the confidence that I have. It's not in what I've done or the letters behind my name. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. He says, we rely on what Christ has done. Humility is relying not on what I've done, but what Christ has done for us. We put, listen, again, this is Paul talking. I feel like I'm shouting at you. This is Paul talking. He says, we put no confidence in human effort. This is Paul talking. We put no confidence in human effort. If anybody could put confidence in a Paul could. He says, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. He's saying, if anybody can brag, man, I can. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now, and here's the rub. I thought all that was valuable. I thought all that I'd done, all my religious observance. Think about this in our context. I thought the fact that I, I attend a church, I tithe, I pray, I do all those things for you, God. And he says, Paul says, I've done all that and more. There's no way that we can compete with what Paul did. And yet, with all this said, Paul then says, "But I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done for me. I consider it worthless. Worthless is a tame word. If you read the King James version, that word is dung. He says, I consider this dog poos because of what Jesus has done. That's the literal translation. <laughs> He's saying it's so worthless. Think of the last time you stepped in dog poo. What do we say? Oh, yuck. It's on my shoes. I can smell it. I guess I can still smell it. That's what he's saying. He's saying all of my accomplishments, all of the things I've done, it's just dog poos on my shoe. It's so disgusting and disdainful. It doesn't matter. I consider it worthless. It's that kind of worthless. I'll now leave the mental image. From your head. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ and becoming one with Him. I no longer count my own righteousness and on and on, He says. This is Paul saying this. It's the most amazing, one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. My wife Fiona and I often talk about this thought over the last couple of years. When someone says to us, you know, when someone tells you a story and they say, and I've got kids, right? I've got three boys they are 14. My my eldest son just turned 14, and I've got an 11 year old who's almost 12, and a 7 year old. And so often parents can say, "Oh, my son uh, just did exams. And, oh, how did he go? Oh, well, well, you know, 97%, you know." But you know, I don't want to talk about my own kids. And and then and then the other parent might say, "Well, actually, my son just uh, made the red football team. Oh, really? That's amazing." Well, it's funny because my 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 daughter actually she was amazing at gymnastics when she was young, and of course now. And we kind of do this. I mean, sometimes pastors can do this. I was in a conversation, uh, I can remember a few months ago, and someone had opened a new campus. And I said, oh, how's the new campus going? And the first thing they said was, oh, it's amazing, man. Over 300 people coming out now. And again, I I had to catch myself because I thought, man, actually, the campus I'm in, we're doing really well too. But I had to catch myself to not throw numbers back at him. 300, you say? (laughs) It's about half the size of our church. But who am I to talk about that? It's so easy to do that. This one-upsmanship. Think about how you process things. Yet humility would continue to ask questions. Humility would continue to say, "300. That's amazing. You must be doing so many things. Wow. God. God be praised. That's awesome. That's awesome. Can we celebrate somebody else's success without feeling like we've got to throw in ours as well? And so we vowed in our life to never be that person that does the one-upsmanship thing. In fact, we've even said to ourselves in our life, if if the language that we have with other people, if it doesn't edify, then I'm not gonna say it. I don't wanna be that person that continues to tell my story at the expense of others and continues to somehow prop myself up because it's not about me and what I can do, it's about Jesus. And so our challenge is to continue to point to Him. So finally, let's go back. Let's go back to that day Jesus rides in on a donkey representing peace and representing nobility and kingship. And imagine you're in the crowd and you're looking and you're, what would you be saying? Because not everybody shouted Hosanna, Hosanna that day. In fact, some of the very people that shouted it were the very people that said crucify Him the next. And so for us, how are we approaching situations I don't know if you set resolutions, but maybe you could think about 2022 could be the year of humility for you. 2022 could be the year where you go, I'm not going to do the one-upsmanship thing. 2022 could be the year where you go, actually, how am I approaching situations? How am I coming into Jerusalem? Am I coming in with a war horse saying, look at what I've done, look at all my achievements. But that only serves yourself. Whereas Jesus came Not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. What a great example Jesus is for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. Could 2022 be the year of service for you? As Pastor Sam has been sharing, if we're going to go big in 2022, we need to raise up a whole army of leaders, a whole army of people that are going to win their world for Jesus, a whole army of people that can go into all the world preaching the gospel in every single situation, in every single workplace that they're in, in every single home, in every single school, in every single ECE. That's what we're called to raise up. Can I say that's your best life is to serve other people. Serve with humility. Father, we thank you and we honour you. We give you all the praise, God, that you sent your son Jesus to serve us by giving his life for us. I thank you for the abundant life that we now have in you, God. And God, we give you all the praise. We thank you, Father God, that just like Jesus, we don't want to be served, but we want to serve. In fact, we want to serve another generation to continue to rise up and stand on the shoulders of all maybe that this generation has done, Lord God. We thank you, Father God, that as we come into a new year, as we come into this Christmas time and celebrate your birth, Jesus, and celebrate all that you've done. Father God, I pray that you would just help us continue to shape us and transform us more into your likeness as we see the coming of you arriving back on this earth one day, Lord God. We thank you for that time. But until that time comes, Lord God, we're going to continue to serve people and we're going to continue to, uh, to see people saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.